Who am I? Who am I? It's a question that we've all asked at different ages and stages of our lives. And how we answer that question, who am I, really reveals our understanding of our purpose, reveals our worldview, which is all wrapped up in our identity. And we find our identity in all sorts of things, don't we? Maybe you find identity based on your national citizenship or what you do for a living or who you are as a mother, father, son, brother, sister, grandma, grandpa. Or maybe you find your identity in your marital status. Or maybe you find your identity in a hobby and the community that surrounds that hobby. We find our identity in all sorts of things. But earthly identity, as we understand it, changes, doesn't it? Years ago, I was a single professional drummer who, when I wasn't touring, was a barista and drum teacher with long hair and no beard. And in that season, I really found my identity in playing drums and the touring life. Well, now I'm a husband, father, and pastor with shorter hair and a beard. We change over time. And yet there are aspects of our identity that, that don't change. There are aspects of our identity that don't change. Things like blood type and certain aspects of our genetics. Even with the raging culture wars over gender norms and roles and trans and LGBTQ rights, our gender and many aspects of our human biology don't change outside of outside manipulation. Here's the point. Identity is a complex thing. And it's a complex conversation. And it's seemingly becoming even more complex day by day. And so in a world of ever-changing identity, in a world of identity confusion that we all have in one degree or another experienced, where can true and lasting and unchangeable identity be found? Well, please open your Bible to the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. It's a little over halfway through the New Testament. This summer, we're going to be living in this letter. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from under a chair near you. You can find the letter of Ephesians on page 917. We're going to be walking through chapter 1, 1 through 14. If you're new to reading the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. And you'll be helped to keep your Bible open this morning to this passage. This is God's word. Let me read it. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the, for, for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. What a fantastic and glorious passage this is. All glory be to Christ. Let's say that together. All glory be to Christ. Amen. Let me pray and then we'll walk through the letter. Sovereign Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes now to behold the glory and majesty of you through your word. And then we ask And I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen your imperfect servant this morning. May the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray, amen, amen. Well, according to historical record, Ephesus was a big city. It was one of the largest cities in the world at the time that this letter was penned. It was a massive cultural epicenter a melting, plot, a melting pot similar to Los Angeles or a place like Seattle. With all the amenities of a major city, including a 25,000-seat arena, amphitheater, and the city had means to host events like the Olympics. And because it was a port city on the water in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, it was diverse ethnically and culturally. It was also a spiritually dark city. Ephesus was a city of worship. First, it worshiped the Roman emperor. In fact, within the city and within the surrounding region, the emperor Caesar Augustus was called sovereign. He was called savior. Second, the city was known for its worship of Diana or Artemis, the goddess of the moon hunting, and fertility. Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the world and sat at the center of Ephesus. The temple was like the sun and the city life orbit around it. 
Additionally, temple and city life was materialistic, infused with idols. Necromancy, which is communicating with the dead. Exorcism, sorcery, and magic. And here's the key. The temple really held the city together. It held the city together. One historical commentator pointed out that it was this temple that gave unity to the city. And it shaped the character of its people. Ephesus was a dark city of worship, marked by its allegiance to political power and salvation through sacred idols and materialism. And its people longed for blessing and redemption through these means. But upon this dark stage, upon this inky black curtain of this pagan city, shined the glorious light of a true and better sovereign, a true and better savior, a true and better salvation, and a true and better society. And this letter to the Ephesians really captures this. And there is an overarching theme that, that really happens, kind of comes over and under the message of the whole letter, okay? Message of the whole letter from the first verse to the last verse. Here's the big picture overview of the whole book. Ephesians is a book about the wisdom, mystery, and glory of Christ revealed through the people of Christ, the church. Ephesians is a book about the wisdom, mystery, and glory of Christ revealed through the people of Christ, the church. And chapters one through three tell us who the church is in Christ. And chapters four through six tell us how the church ought to live together in Christ. But drilling down into our passage this morning, the Holy Spirit through the hand of Paul wants us to bask and delight in the blessing and redemption that can only come through the one true God. And so if you're taking notes this morning, here's the big idea of Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Here's the big idea. God has blessed and redeemed his church in Christ. God has blessed and redeemed his church in Christ. And who is the church? How has God blessed and redeemed the church? And who has guaranteed salvation for the church? Well, Paul answers these questions by pointing us to three truths. God's people in Christ. We see this in verses 1 and 2. God's plan in Christ, this is verses 3 through 10, and then God's promise in Christ, verses 11 through 14. So, God's people, God's plan, God's promise in Christ. So, point one, God's people in Christ, verses 1 through 2. Let me read them once again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I often treat a letter kind of like an Oreo. I want to get through that top layer just so I can get to the really good stuff in the center. 
I just got to get through it. But we ought to stop and we ought to sit and just kind of enjoy this greeting for just a moment because it's loaded with goodness and it informs the direction of, of the letter. In these two verses, we have the author, the audience, and the aim of the letter. So the author, the audience, and the aim. First, we have the letter's author. Paul, the apostle or messenger of Jesus, is the author. This is the same Paul who was formerly named Saul. The same guy who, as we find out in Acts chapter 9 and chapter 8, was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off Christian men and women, taking them to prison, and was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This man was like an arsonist, looking for Christians to set ablaze. But his life, and you could read more about this in Acts chapter 9, his life was turned upside down when he confronted, he was confronted by God on the road to Damascus, and he was transformed and saved. He was made by God's sovereign grace, one of God's people. And he went from church killer to church planter, an apostle of Jesus, not by his will, as the text says, but by his, by God's will, by God's will. Secondly, the second half of verse one, we find the audience. Ephesus was full of saints and ain'ts as we saw earlier. And in its immediate context, Paul is writing to the saints in Ephesus, Christians, God's people who are in the city, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice it doesn't say faithful to Christ Jesus. It says that they're faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul's letter, especially this one, wasn't written merely to Christians scattered. It was mainly written to Christians gathered. Paul is writing to local churches, those in Christ, in that region. And this was the first time in the letter, here in verse 1, the second half of verse 1, this is the first time that we see those words, in Christ, or in Him. And those words come up 11 times in these 14 verses. Paul is writing to the saved, Jew and Gentile, male, female, employee, and boss. He is writing to all the ethnically and culturally diverse saved ones in Christ. And it has been said that there is no first or second class citizen in the church. There's no first or second class citizen in the church. There's only one redeemed, multi-ethnic, multicultural church. And Peter is writing to the faithful church of then and the faithful church of now in Christ. And so this is a letter to God's people and for God's people. This is a letter to the local church and for the local church. This is a letter for us and to us. And from Paul's day to today, this letter is significant for our lives. So now that we know the letter's author and audience, let's, let's look briefly at the aim. Paul writes, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a standard Pauline salutation, and it displays Paul's heart behind the letter. This is a letter of grace and of peace from God through the hand of Paul to the people of God. And this isn't just good vibes from God. No, this is grace. 
from the one triune God. And Paul wants us to know him, to see him clearly, and to exalt him. And this is seen even in the structure of these verses. It's seen in the structure of these verses. The Trinity is here. I want us to notice the Trinitarian structure of this whole passage. We see the gracious work of the Father in verses 3 through 6. We see the gracious work of the Son in verses 7 through 12. And we see the gracious work of the Spirit in verses 13 through 14. For Paul, everything flows down and out from the grace of this triune God. And the aim of everything written in this letter is to fill the church with that grace and peace that can only come from him alone. But what does that grace and peace look like? What does it look like tangibly? How has God planned to pour out this grace and peace upon his people, upon the church? Oh, let's, let's go and see. Let's go and see. This is in verses 3 through 14, which is actually one giant, glorious, 202-word sentence in Greek, in the Greek, in the original language. So let's, let's work through this. Point two, God's plan in Christ. Have you ever been on a trail or a scenic drive that feels like one giant lookout point? The kind of path or road where everywhere you look, you can't help but be overcome by the beauty and the majesty and the glory of what you're seeing. Here in this section of the letter, Paul, our guide, takes us down a road. It's a long road. He takes us down a road that does just that. And it's a road where just when you think it's coming to an end, it opens up to another vista point that displays a God that is bigger than life and a redemption that is more glorious than we could ever imagine. So for our first vista point that Paul takes us and guides us to, let's look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We should notice the implicit structure within this verse. Here we see the work of the Father who blesses, the Son who blesses, and the blessing work of the Spirit mentioned. And just as Paul gets going in the letter, he is overcome by praise. He says, blessed be God, or praise be to God. It's like he starts off singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. I mean, he cannot, he can't keep it in. He can't contain it. He's excited about the blessings from the Father through Jesus. He praises, Paul praises God the Father who blesses us, the church, in Christ here. And this isn't some half or partial blessing. No, this is a full and complete spiritual blessing. And what does that look like? What are these spiritual blessings? What is this? Well, it's all the blessings and promises of God found in his word. From God's promise to bless the people through Abraham in Genesis 12 to God's promise in number six to bless us, to keep us, for his face to shine upon us and to give us peace. All of this is ours in Jesus Christ. And as Paul states in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, all of God's promises have found their yes and amen in Jesus. Amen? 
God has poured out all spiritual blessings upon his people in and through Jesus. And beloved, every blessing that belongs to Christ belongs to you if you are in union with him. It doesn't get any better than that. It's incredible. Well, where has God blessed us in Christ? Well, it says that he's blessed us in the heavenly places. It's really fascinating that leading scientists from every major university in the world believes that there are multiple, if not one single, unseen dimension. The heavenly realm is that. It's heaven. It's the place where Christ sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father now. And it's the same place where God chose his people and planned their redemption. Planned their redemption. And that leads us to uh, our, our second vista point, the church is chosen and adopted in Christ, verses four through six. Look there with me. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved for many in the church, these words chosen, uh, predestined, they're four-letter words. Not to be spoken because they divide or stir up questions or, or maybe cause spiritual anxiety. But we should note, we should note that God uses these words, that the Spirit uses these words through the hand of Paul to speak of redemption that, he, that God has planned and accomplished And so we should speak them boldly in love. For we have been chosen in love. We have been chosen in love. And this is how God has always worked. In the Old Testament, God chose Abraham. He gave him the gift of faith. And through him, God planned to bless the world, to bless the nations. As we press further into the Old Testament... We see God choosing Israel to be his treasured possession. We read that earlier in Deuteronomy 14. God chose and adopted a people according to his grace. But here in Ephesians, we see that God chooses and elects all who are in Christ, the church. And it has always been God's plan to save the church. In love, we were chosen, predestined before the foundation of the world in Christ. This means that the church didn't start in Eden. The church didn't start at Sinai. The church didn't start at Pentecost. No, the church was birthed in eternity past. And what was happening in heaven before the first three words of Genesis 1, if you know them, say them with me, in the beginning, the Father, Son, and Spirit were delighting and communing with one another. And it has been said that they were drawing up plans and examining the cost of blessing, redeeming, and adopting the church. Most of the time, we roll right past that word, but loving adoption, loving adoption is key to God's salvation story because we aren't only chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless, as it says in verse 4, we are adopted and made holy and blameless in Christ. We who are sinful, unlovely, and hellbound 
have been bought into and brought into the family of God and, giving all, and have been given all the blessings and the holiness and the blamelessness of Christ. See, election and adoption bring blessing, but they also bring responsibility. We are to be holy as God is holy. We cannot do this perfectly in this life, but we do pursue this in this life. And this language here of holy and blameless goes back to Exodus chapter 29 and the Old Testament sacrificial system. But Christ, who is the perfect once and for all sacrifice, died for his people's sins, and in and through him we are made righteous. And because of this, we could shout from the rooftops, there is therefore no condemnation for the church. There is no condemnation for those who have been adopted in Christ. There is royal blood flowing through the veins within the church, and nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. Over my years of pastoral care, one of the ongoing conversations and questions that I often hear goes something like this. I'm struggling with sin. It won't go away. I don't know if I'm saved. How can I have assurance of my faith? And here's my four-part response. It generally goes something like this. Number one, the fact that you're aware of your sin is a sign that Christ is at work in you. Someone without Christ simply doesn't care. Two, you are adopted in Christ, therefore there is no condemnation, so you can be at peace. Third, if you are living in ongoing repentance and faith, take heart, kill your sin, and know that Christ is in you and with you and for you. And fourth, find another member here in the church to walk alongside you, to help you walk in the light and remind you of your standing in Christ. As Christians walking side by side, we need to be counseling one another with this truth, reminding one another of our identity ultimately in Christ. We need to be remembering that or what family we have been bought into and brought into by the blood of Jesus. It's interesting that Paul is writing to the saints at Ephesus. And we know from Scripture that, that Paul spent three years with the church in this region. Three whole years. This was a prolific area, and this was a prolific church. And an abundance of faithful pastors, including Timothy, were developed within this region, within this church here in Ephesus. It's incredible. So why does Paul go through all the work of writing this to saints who already know this stuff? Why does he do it? Because he knows that they, like us, are prone to spiritual amnesia. We are prone to spiritual amnesia, and we need to be reminded often of our identity, forgiveness, and redemption in the crucified and risen beloved, as it says there in verse 6. And all of this is to the praise of his glorious grace. Well, this brings us to our third vista point on the glorious path that Paul is guiding us on. The church is redeemed and forgiven in Christ. 
I want us to notice two aspects in these verses about God's redemptive plan for the church. First is the payment of the plan, verses 7 through 8, and then the purpose of the plan, verses 9 through 10. So first, the payment of the plan, verses 7 through 8. Look there with me. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. At the very heart of redemption, at the very heart of redemption sits the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. The truth that Jesus died in our place, that he died the death that we deserved that Christ absorbed the wrath of God against sin and took that penalty for us. He died as our substitute. His blood was the payment for our sins so that we may be forgiven. What grace. Without this truth, there is no gospel. Without his blood spilt as a sacrifice before God, there is no redemption. Redemption wouldn't exist. But according to the riches of God's grace, he showed his love for his people and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He became sin who knew no sin so that we, the church, might become the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God. And how has all of this been displayed in real time and real history? The cross. All of this has been displayed in the cross of Christ. In the cross, God made his plan for forgiveness visible and known. And he poured out through the cross forgiveness and wisdom and insight upon the church. The public death and resurrection of Jesus is a historical and spiritual window into the goodness and grace and wisdom of God. And for all of those who repent and believed in the finished work of Christ, then salvation is yours. This redemption is yours. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, if you're here this morning and you're relying on your good works to get you into heaven, if you're here this morning and you don't know the sovereign work of God through Christ for sinners like you and I, let me invite you to repent and believe today to repent of your sin, all those things that you've done wrong against God, against yourself, and against others, and turn to him in faith today. If you have questions about this, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love to speak with you. There's nothing more I would rather do than speak with you about the redeeming work of Christ for sinners like you and I. Nothing more. Well, in this section of Ephesians 1, we see the payment there in verses 7 through 8, the payment made in God's redemptive plan. And in verses 9 through 10, we find the purpose of the plan. So look there with me. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In the person and work of Jesus, God has made known to us the mystery. 
of his will. Salvation is no longer a a mystery. It's no longer a mystery. The plan of salvation has been fully made known and fully revealed in Christ. And this has all happened, how? According to the purpose of God. Have you noticed the pattern and repetition within this whole section? Over and over again, we read these words, by the will of God, according to the purpose of his will, according to his grace, according to his purpose set forth in Christ. And we'll see in the next section, according to the counsel of his will. It's almost like God is sovereign over all things. Here's the lesson. God is meticulously sovereign over all things. Nothing has happened since before the foundation of the world that falls outside of his will and watchful eye. And just, just so we know, this all happens in accordance with his grace that he has made known through Jesus. This has all been made known through the salvation that he has made known through Jesus. And that plan is in motion now. That work of redemption is in motion now. New creation has broken into the church now. This is happening now. And though we and the earth groans for complete redemption, Christ will return to restore and unite all things. All things. At the fullness of time, which is a fancy way of saying the day of Christ's return, all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, the cosmic and the material will be united under his perfect rule and reign in the new heaven and the new earth. Pastor John Stott put it this way, in the fullness of time, God's two creations, his whole universe and his whole church will be unified under the cosmic Christ who is the supreme head of both. What grace and hope we have in Christ. Well, thus far in the passage, we've been guided down a path where we have seen vista point after vista point, the glory of Christ and how God has blessed and redeemed the church. We have looked at God's people in Christ in verses 1 through 2, and we've looked at God's plan in Christ, verses 3 through 10. And now let's look at God's promise in Christ, verses 11 through 14. Let me read those verses, verses 11 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In the gospel according to Luke, we find in In chapter 15, Jesus tells a parable. And the parable is the the commonly known parable of the prodigal son. It's a story about a son who demands an early inheritance from his father. And then he goes into the world. And what happens? He, He seeks fortune and he wastes it all. He blows it. And as the story unfolds, we find that the son ends up with absolutely nothing. He ends up with a confused identity 
as a pig farmer. And he, a Jewish boy, ends up feeding the pigs, an unclean animal according to Jewish tradition. The son hit rock bottom. That's the moral of the story. He hit rock bottom. He had received all of the earthly blessings from the father, but he squandered it. And so he returns home. And I love this. I just love this. The father is waiting for him. The father is waiting for him. He's watching for him. And what does he do? He runs to him. And before he can get through his confession, before he can get through repentance, the the father embraces him and gives him a robe, a ring, and shoes. All the signs of promise, of adoption and redemption. The father does all of this to prove his love in redeeming the son. Now, there are many layers of this parable, but here's how it connects to the greater context of these verses in our passage this morning. Back in verse 3, we read of the heavenly blessings that come through the heavenly Father. And if we belong to the Father, then nothing can change that. This means that no matter what you've done or where you've been or how far you've strayed, if you are a son or daughter of God, then nothing can change that. And from the Father, through Christ, we have been extended the blessing, the inheritance of salvation, an inheritance that is far greater and far bigger than an earthly inheritance that can be squandered, but a lasting inheritance that is incredible and more gracious than we could possibly imagine. And that inheritance has been guaranteed and assured by who? The Spirit. And this is Paul's point. And he guides us to this final vista point in our path. As blessed sons and daughters, as predestined sons and daughters, as adopted, redeemed, and forgiven sons and daughters in Christ, we have a sure and promised inheritance in him. For we are a part of the you also, there in verse 13. And God didn't one day just flippantly decide, ah, I'll give the church an inheritance. No, we were predestined according to the purpose of God, the one who works all things. Notice that word, all those words, all things according to the counsel of his will. He did all of this so that we could receive it. And how do we receive it? Well, verses 12 through 13, through the word of truth, the gospel, through hope in Christ, and through belief in him. God is sovereign over salvation. And ultimately, as we've seen in this text, salvation begins and ends with him, with God. And he enables us to place our hope in Christ and believe the truth of the person and work of Jesus by sovereign grace. And once we become a Christian, we don't do away with the gospel. No, the gospel becomes a daily ongoing reality for us. We live in ongoing repentance and belief belief day after day. And this is why we preach the gospel week after week here at EBC. 
because it is the gospel, the truth that Jesus Christ is our Lord, that he came as our king, that he died for our sins and then rose to rule and he will return to judge. We preach this message every week because it is this truth that saves and daily sustains the church by daily grace. And here we read that believers, all believers who are caught up in Christ, who hold fast to the gospel, are filled with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of confusion about the role of the Holy Spirit, isn't there, in the church today? Lots of differing ideas about what the Spirit's primary role is. But Jesus makes it clear in June 16, and then Paul does here as well. The promised Holy Spirit's primary responsibility, his primary role is to testify of Christ's finished work of salvation in the gospel to the church to continuously point the believer to comfort in Christ in the finished work of, the, of salvation in the gospel and to seal and guarantee the believer with Christ's finished work in the what? You guessed it, the gospel. And a seal is a mark of ownership and protection. The Holy Spirit is that seal that distinguishes the people of God from the people of the world. In dark places like Ephesus, and dark places like the Pacific Northwest, it's the spirit, the mark of the spirit upon a believer, upon the church that separates them from the world. The church is made up of marked off ones, saved and sealed ones. And that seal is the guarantee of the inheritance waiting for those who believe in the gospel. The seal is the down payment, if you will, of electing love over us, guaranteeing full payment for us in heaven. And connecting this to the previous two points, make no mistake, beloved church, make no mistake, that salvation has been planned and promised by the Father. It has been accomplished in the Son, and it is sealed and applied to the church by the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, we should close. Paul ends this large 202-word sentence with the repeated phrase, to the praise of his glory. All of this rich theology ends in rich doxology. All of it. The truth of God moves us, ought to move us, to the praise of God, right? The truth of God ought to move us to the praise of God. And the more clearly we understand what God has done for the church, and more clearly we understand who God is, and the more clearly we understand that we are sinners, made saints, by the pure grace of God in Christ, the more we ought to do two things. I'll close with this, two things. First, as Paul does, we should praise God who saves by sovereign grace. Right? We should praise him who saves by sovereign grace. And second, if you're a Christian, living a life of ongoing repentance and faith in Christ, then today, this truth found in the whole passage verses. 1 through 14 of chapter 1 in Ephesians belongs to you. And therefore, you can answer the question, who am I? With these words. I am blessed in Christ 
I am chosen in Christ, predestined in Christ, adopted in Christ, redeemed in Christ, forgiven in Christ, united in Christ, saved by Christ, and sealed in Christ. Amen? Amen. Praise him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your peace that has been extended to your church through Jesus. Lord, thank you for making known the mystery of your will through that public work of his life and his death and his resurrection. And Lord, we look forward to the day where that resurrection life is made complete and we stand in glory with you. Keep us until that day, O Lord. Keep us faithful in your gospel. And Lord, may we not forget that you have adopted and redeemed us, your people, in and through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.